Good morning, and uh, thank you, Gordon. If you were here last week, uh, we thought about and looked at three practices which have been given to us and graciously given to us to help shape and form us from the outside in. Three spiritual disciplines, three holy habits, and here they are, or here they were, giving, praying, and fasting. And Jesus spoke about these three formational practices in Matthew chapter 6 as as part of his world-changing speech, the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the key lessons that he taught about each of these practices and disciplines and habits was that we should do them for an audience of one. That it's not about, or it's never about trying to impress others, to gain their admiration or their approval or their applause. But it is about nurturing and developing our relationship with God who who sees everything we said who notices everything, and who rewards. So it's about developing and nurturing our relationship with God, and it's also about growth and discipleship. It's about becoming more like Jesus, because what we practice, we become. And so, and for the grammar police, I have changed this slide. I know it should, okay? Last week, a number of you lost the rest of the sermon because of this slide, okay? I now have practice giving because of cult so okay, rest assured. You sad bunch. Practice giving, it cultivates generosity, practice praying, it cultivates intimacy, and practice fasting, it cultivates dependency. But last week, as we, we read Matthew 6, we skipped nine verses, which contain the most perfect prayer for imperfect people. Verses 7 to 15 of Matthew 6 consists of 57 words. At least it does in the original Greek. And for those who were here on Sunday evenings back in October and November 2009, that number 57 should ring a few bells. So it's the most perfect prayer for imperfect people, but it's also a radical prayer given its content. Plus it's a timeless prayer Gifted to the original, but also to all subsequent disciples of Jesus Christ. Many of us know it off by heart. One of uh, my few enduring memories of primary school is standing in the assembly hall on a regular basis. It might even have been every morning at that stage, actually, and saying the so-called Lord's Prayer. And so I'd like you to join me in praying it this morning in whatever version you have learnt it in, okay? And if you're not familiar with this prayer, then you can find the words of it at the beginning of Matthew 6. It's page 970 in the Red Pew. So could I invite you to stand and we'll pray and kind of read God's word at the same time. So please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. 
Amen. Grab a seat. Prayer is a privilege. It's a gift. It's a, it's a spiritual lifeline. There are a few things, if any, in the Christian life that are more important and more formational than prayer. And yet, it can be a struggle at times. And it can be a struggle for various reasons and maintaining a, a consistent prayer life can be a challenge. And therefore, coming back to this prayer and reconnecting and re-engaging with this prayer is vital because here is how to pray. Here is how we should pray according to Jesus in Matthew 6 verse 9 where he says, here is how you should pray. And he launches into it. And in Luke 11, whenever Jesus had returned from his own personal prayer time, and it, it constantly amazes me that the Son of God needed to retreat personally to pray, and yet he did. But when he came back on one occasion in, in, in Luke 11 from his personal prayer time, his disciples came to him and said, teach us to pray. Please show us how to pray. And what did Jesus do? He gave them this model prayer. Or at least in Luke 11, a slightly condensed version of it. And so using this prayer on a regular basis could and should reignite our prayer lives. And so if you don't pray this prayer as part of your daily routine, if you've lost this holy habit, let me encourage you to embrace it afresh this morning. Now, I know for some people that they use it as a template, as a kind of framework. And in other words, they, they use each phrase as a launch pad. So, for example, give us today our daily bread is a spark for some people to then go on and thank God for what they do have and to ask God for what they need and for the needs of others. And there's real value in that approach to the Lord's Prayer, using each phrase as a, as a launch pad. But there's also something dynamic and profoundly important and formational about simply repeating it slowly, word for word, and allowing it to become embedded in our thinking and kind of woven into the very fabric of our being, allowing it to expand your perspective and align your mind to the mind of Christ. This is one of the things that we are taught we should be doing, and I believe here is one of the ways we do that. You want to align your mind to the mind of Christ, pray this prayer consistently. So when you wake up each morning, before you get out of bed, before you start the day, just simply say those words. It's time you jump into the car by yourself. Leave the radio switched off for a moment. Don't plug in your phone. Don't connect whatever player you use for a few minutes. And just pray this prayer. Whatever it means or however it works for you, insert it into the rhythm of your life. 
because it is the only set prayer Jesus gave us. It's the only prayer Jesus urged us to use. So the question I have for myself is, why do I not use this more consistently? Why? So let's take a closer look at its depth and scope. We're going to whiz through this. But the opening words alone are immense. Our Father. And that first word, our, reminds us immediately that we're part of a community. Our, this is not a prayer for individuals, simply. Of course, we can and should pray it by ourselves, but we must never forget that this is a communal prayer, and prayer is a communal language. And so it was the practice of the early church that every single time they met together, they used this prayer. And I know in some traditions they still do. Sadly, we don't. I think I've shared this simple poem before. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say I. You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for one another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it. It never once says me. Are. But it's even more than being part of a new community. It's also being, being part of a new family. So it's our father. We're children of none other than God himself. And Gordon has helped us think about that. God of the galaxies is our Father. And as you look around you this morning, these are your brothers and sisters. Sorry about that. As you look around at certain ones. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this is a prayer that connects. The minute you say our Father, immediately connected. Reminds us of our relationship, yes, to God, and we'll come to that in a moment, but also our relationship to and with one another. We're in this together. We're not lone ranger Christians. We're not left to face the ups and downs of life on our own. We journey together, our Father. We're part of a community. We're part of a family. And so as we say the very first two words, and this is really what I want to get across this morning. I really want you to take your time as you think about this and pray this prayer, to consider every single word of it. Because you see, even when you say the first two words, immediately you realize, we, I, belong. To God, to one another. I'm sure many of you know this, but with this prayer, Jesus introduced a, a very different way of addressing God. The idea of saying, calling God Father, mightn't have been entirely new. I know God is referred to as Father something like 14 times in the Old Testament, but... As Jesus breaks into our world, he calls God Father some 60 times in the Gospels. Speaking of the closeness and the intimacy that existed between them. And as he gives us this prayer, he communicates the amaz this amazing reality that you, you as a messed up, broken, flawed, sinful human being, can actually call this holy creator God your father. 
And so this prayer is an invitation to intimacy. As the called, the blessed, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, we can now draw near and call him Father. Now I know that for some in our society and probably a few here, the term Father conjures up all kinds of images and memories. It is naturally and it's deeply connected to and associated with our experience of our earthly fathers. Which could mean that words such as, whenever you hear the word father, words such as absent, harsh, demanding, detached. Those are the kind of words that for some people here this morning immediately come to mind when you hear the term father. And therefore, there are those who struggle with the reality of God as that. They find it difficult to use such intimate terms. And I don't want to underestimate that difficulty. I don't want to downplay that tension. But our Heavenly Father is none of those things. He is good. He is merciful. He is generous. He is loving. He's compassionate. He's just. He's kind. He is for us. And therefore, every single time we begin this prayer, we're reminded, here we have a perfect Father who has brought us into relationship. He is completely other, as Gordon said this morning, and yet he calls me near. Our Father. But then, in heaven. Now, whenever we tend to think of heaven, we think of a faraway place. For the first century Jew, heaven was not a faraway place, but an overlapping space. Heaven is not a faraway place. It's an overlapping space. And so whenever they prayed, our Father in heaven, they, they were not praying to a God who was distant, a God who was kind of like way out there disconnected, isolated, detached, but to a God of the heavens who was close, who was at hand, who had come near. And as the prayer continues, Jesus teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. And remember what Jesus had said right at the very start of the series, and I know we keep coming back to this verse, but it's really important we do this. But whenever Jesus stood up in public for one of the first times, what was it he said? Repent for, the, for uh, the, that time on Jesus. Sorry, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's arriving. It's touching down. Earth is now an outpost of heaven. It's not a faraway place, heaven. It's an overlapping space. And when we pray this prayer, our Father in heaven, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what we're actually asking for, we're actually asking for God's space to invade our space and become more visible. What we're actually praying and longing for is that God's influential rule and reign would come and break into our world, would come and break into our situation. Our Father, bring your influence to bear right here, right now, in my world, in our world. And so that is why we pray for peace. 
That is why we pray for wisdom. That is why we pray for healing. That is why we pray for miraculous intervention. That is why we pray for hope. God, may your space, may your rule and reign come to bear in our space. May it break in. May we increasingly see it, know it, experience it. Our Father, not way up there, not out of touch, not out of reach. Our Father, who is right here. Continue to bring your rule and reign here as it is in heaven. But we missed a bit. Hallowed be your name. It's, it's actually the first petition. Our Father in heaven, now we come to the first petition. I know I've jumped forward, back again. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Which J.I. Packer, I know some of you love him and read him, he describes as the most basic request of this whole prayer. And then he makes this rather bold claim about this one petition. He says, see if you understand this petition and make it your own, then you have unlocked the secret of both prayer and life. That's a bold claim. But in 21st century secularized, westernized society and context, words such as hallowed, like what's that all about? Hallowed? And even name, it's lost its importance and weight. I mean, whenever you discover what some people are willing to call their kids, and I'm not going to give any examples because that's just asking for trouble. But you kind of do realize that our attitude towards names has changed, it has shifted. But names are important. And whenever you mention someone's name, the thing you do with a name is you immediately make connections. You get a picture in your mind. You associate certain things with that name. So, for example, whenever I say David Cameron, right? You, along with everyone else in this building, will begin to think something about him. Something about his character. Something about his reputation. Something about his background. Something about his influence. We just do that. Names do matter, but no name is more important than God's name. And nothing is more important than what you associate, connect, and picture alongside his name. Nothing. God's name is a revelation of his very person and character. We discover who God is and what God is like via his name. And as we probably all realize, there are numerous names for God, of God, titles of God contained in scripture. Here's a small selection of them. And someone has described the names of God as miniature portraits. Miniature portraits which enable us to build up a better, clearer, more colorful, more dynamic picture of the God of the universe and what he's really like, who we can call our Father. So at one level, you see, whenever you say, whenever you breathe out those words, hallowed be your name. Do you know what you're longing for? Do you know what you're asking for? You're asking God, please deepen, please broaden my concept, my understanding of who God is. so easy to lose perspective. So easy. Hallowed 
is always not a word that's in popular use today. But what's it about? Well, it's about reminding us that, that God is holy, completely other, as Gordon said, set apart. If you, ha- if you use the New Living Translation, verse 9 says, Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. And so do you know what this is? This is a cry for reverence. This is a cry for honor. This is a cry for respect. God, may you be honored, respected. Let's not get on people's backs out there who don't honor and respect and revere God. Let's make sure we're doing it as the people of God. Let's make sure we're doing it. You know, whenever human beings encounter or approach God, the most striking attribute that hits them is the holiness of God, and that's why Moses kicked off his shoes. That's why Isaiah recognized what a mess he was. That's why Miriam's song on the far side of the Red Sea included the lyric, who is like you, the point being no one, and then she sang at the top of her lungs and encouraged everyone to join her. Who is like you, majestic in what? In holiness. Even angels and heavenly creatures know this. And so they surround God. And what are they crying right now? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so it's God's holiness that screams the loudest to anyone and anything that encounters him. And so whenever we offer this prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We are acknowledging right up front who God is. And in response, shoes come off, knees bow, sin disgusts, and worship begins. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And praying this prayer retains this balance. And I know we've talked about this before and I don't have time. It retains this balance whenever we say, Our Father in heaven, Hallowed be your name. It retains the balance between the friendship and the fear. God is our friend. We've sang that. But we need to to come before God in fear. Holy reverence. Deep respect. Shoes off. Knees bowed. Sin disgusts. Worship begins. Your kingdom come. Your, which we've already briefly mentioned. Your will be done. God's will is a massive subject, so let's deal with that in 45 seconds, right? Your will be done. And at the heart of this dangerous petition, your will be done, and, and don't pray this lightly, but at the heart of that dangerous petition is an expression of submission and surrender. It's about asking, sorry, no, it's about allowing God to have his way in our lives and circumstances, even though you've no idea why they're they're happening. We all know what a clash of wills looks like at a human level. Anybody had a clash of wills this morning on their way to church? Come on out the door. Of course I didn't. Uh, But also there is a battle of the wills between us and God. And therefore, 
We need to pray, God, your will be done. As, as Daryl Gruder writes, I don't have this on the screen, prayer is not about getting what we want, the fulfillment of our will. It is about learning what God wants, the binding of our wills to God. And that, though, I realize those sort of things are easy to say, and I can pass over them. And for some of you sitting here this morning, you're in situations and you're going, not my will, but yours be done, God. And that's through gritted teeth you're saying, and, and it's hard. And so I don't say that lightly, despite the fact that I'm rushing through this. But as the model prayer continues, there's a subtle shift in language, nearly done. From your name, your kingdom, your will, now becomes about us. Give us, forgive us, lead us. Give us today our daily bread. We need bread. It's a fundamental staple of human existence. It's essential food. And so in our context, in our context here this morning, we thank God for his provision. And for the fact that by and large, we eat well. By and large, we have plenty. But notice, not give me my bread. It's give us. And so as we pray these words, we're encouraged and maybe even forced to see beyond our needs and to realize that we live in a world where literally millions of people, literally millions of people today will not find bread. And humanly speaking, won't find any tomorrow. And so this petition, as we say this, give us, us, our world, our neighbors, the poor, Give us today our daily bread. Save us from excessive self-centeredness, God. Enable us to become more socially aware, considerate and generous. As the Latin American prayer says, O oh God, to those who have hunger, give bread, and to those who have bread, give hunger for justice. Please, God. Forgive us our sins. As we forgive those who sin against us, and again, it almost seems wrong to make a few comments rather than stress this in great detail. Such a critical petition as this for kingdom dwellers. So critical. For people who are, and our identity, remember, who are we? We are the called, the blessed, the salt of the earth, the light of the world. That's who we are. And here is such a critical petition for each of us. Regular confession and seeking God's forgiveness for our sins is vital as we maintain this unique relationship with our Father and pursue Christ's likeness. And in a few minutes, we're going to gather around this table. And again, we're going to have an opportunity to recall the cost of making our forgiveness possible. Yet another opportunity here this morning, and I hope, I hope we don't take this for granted. And I know we do it every week, and there is always a risk that it becomes routine. But here we have, in a few moments, another opportunity to cry out to a holy God, God, recreate in me a clean heart. Purify me. Cleanse me. And therefore, this dimension of the prayer, forgive us our sins, is a constant reminder of our need. That's why I believe we need to pray it every single day. Because I don't know about you, but I mess up every single day. 
But it's part two of this petition that challenges us at a very deep level is we forgive those who sin against us. Yes, that first part. I love, I get, I celebrate. But as we forgive those who sin against us. And just in case we don't get the importance of this issue, Jesus adds a bit at the end. We didn't read it this morning. But verses 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, straight after the Lord's Prayer, the one petition that Jesus comes back to, and here's what he said, if you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. Do you know that's as explicit as it gets? It's uncomfortable. But that's authentic Christian living. That's counter-cultural. That's life in an alternative kingdom. And so as we eat and drink, we seek God's forgiveness yet again. But we also have to ask ourselves, is there someone here? Is there someone out there that I need to forgive? who has sinned against me, finally lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. Temptation in life is inevitable and therefore needing to pray for divine help to cope with it and to resist the pressure to give in and to cave in is necessary, but in some ways that's, that's not quite what this petition deals with. Because it implies, lead us not into temptation. So does that mean God tempts us? Well, of course God doesn't tempt us. James 1.13, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So the word temptation here must mean something a little more than we tend to think it means. And it does, because what it also means is testing and trial. And again, as we all know, and some here this morning know this all too well, God in his sovereignty does allow trials and testing to intrude into our lives. And when we go through trials and testing, yes, they develop certain things within us. Yes, they teach us to perseverance. Yes, they put muscle on our souls. Yes, they can shape us and form us at a very deep level, but you know something? I don't know anybody who wants to go through them. And so for me, it's perfectly okay to say, Father, don't take us there. Is that not what Jesus did after all? If it's possible, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go there. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It's perfectly okay to say, God, I don't want to go through this. And deliver us from the evil one. Done. This prayer is an incredible gift. A real gift. And therefore, if you can't actually recall the last time you prayed it apart from half an hour ago, can I encourage you to take it away this morning and start praying it on a regular basis? Matthew Henry described this prayer as remarkably simple yet vastly comprehensive. Don't miss out by not using it. 
And as we approach this table, final thought, Jesus not only gave us this prayer, Jesus is this prayer. So he reveals our Father who's in heaven. He brings the kingdom, the rule of God near to us, doing the will of God here on earth as it is in heaven. He is our daily bread. He is our forgiveness because he became our sinfulness. He has overcome the world and its trouble. He delivers us from the evil one and the kingdom and the power and the glory in his because he lives and he reigns with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.